The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You bet, Disability Law Show. We're back. Good to have you back as well. John Scholes hosting and the guy with all the knowledge, really, who needs to be here every week, James Fireman, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP, to reach out to James with your disability uh, law matters. If it's a simple question or you got something you're not sure uh, how to answer it, or if you're getting uh, a lot of static and stress from your insurance company going forward, reach out to James, get some answers, at least have a chat right off the top, right? one 855 215900, the phone number, email help at disabilityrights.ca. They're already coming in. The emails, James, got a lot to get through uh, for the next hour, but we always start off, get warmed up, as they say, with the uh, the week that was or matter you've been dealing with, pal. What do you got? Well, I want to talk about mental health claims okay. uh, and the particular issues faced by the people who contact me, the clients who I have that are suffering from mental health issues. And when I when I say that, I'm not talking necessarily only about people who are on disability specifically for a mental health issue, although certainly those people as well. But I'm also including those who have physical issues and who have developed mental health issues subsequently, often because of their physical issues. It is not at all uncommon to have people that are on disability for one issue and develop another issue while they are off. And that counts. To be very clear, if you are on disability, as long as you have a continuous medical condition that prevents you from being able to work, that medical condition can change or can grow to include other things. So let's say, for example, you are Uh, injured in an accident and you have a back issue that prevents you from being able to work for an extended period of time and your treatment isn't going so well and you're having difficulty walking and so forth. Well, clearly you're not able to work because of your physical condition, but that may also develop into a mental health issue. It wouldn't at all be surprising to anyone Mm -hmm. if losing that kind of function is going to result in depression, anxiety, and perhaps other issues as well. And so that becomes part of your disability claim. And then even if down the road, your physical condition improves to the point where you're able to go back to some other occupation. So beyond the two-year mark where the test changes to whether you're disabled from any occupation, let's say at that point, your physical condition isn't preventing you from uh, returning to any occupation. But if you've developed a mental health condition that is preventing you from doing that, even if you didn't have the mental health condition when you first went off, then you are still entitled to benefits. It's not always recognized by the insurance company, particularly if it is something that develops while you are on leave, while you are on disability. Insurance companies often will overlook this, I would argue, quite intentionally most of the time. Uh, But it is something that is not always accounted for properly. So that is an issue that is faced by a lot of people who are in the process. And then there are general issues that people who have mental health issues are going to face in the disability claims process, whether it's their primary disability or whether it makes up a part of their overall disability presentation. First and foremost, this isn't a surprise to anybody, but we just have a lack of mental health care across the country. It is typically worse the further you get from an urban center, not always, but typically it's worse. Uh, And so getting access to proper mental health care 
is incredibly difficult. I would strongly recommend that if you are in that situation and your doctor says to you, oh, well, I could give you a referral to a psychiatrist, but you're not going to get in for a year or two years or whatever it is. That's unfortunate, but I wouldn't say no to the referral, even if it's going to take a long period of time. Because if you're involved in this process, what you absolutely want to make sure of is that you can say to the insurance company, I did everything that I can. I did not leave any stone unturned. My doctor said it's going to take me a long time to get the referral to the psychiatrist, but I'm on the waiting list. I can't do anything more than that. But then you also want to look for other alternatives. If it is going to take six months, a year, two years, whatever it is, to get your psychiatric assessment and hopefully treatment thereafter, then find other things that you can do for treatment in the interim. Talk to your doctor about whether medication is appropriate. And certainly that's nothing I offer any opinion on. That's obviously a medical issue. But also ask your doctor about whether there are any alternative treatment, uh, alternative therapy that might be available particularly if you can find anything that's free of charge. Uh, Oftentimes there are community uh, group therapy sessions that are available. There may be uh, options online that are inexpensive or in some cases offered for free. I'm not suggesting to you that this is going to resolve your issues and it may not even eventually be helpful at the end of the day, but if nothing else, it will show your insurance company that you are doing everything that you can to address your mental health concerns. And that is really important. You do not want to give them the option to say that whether or not you have a mental health condition, you certainly haven't done anything to address it. And therefore they're not required to pay because the policy requires that you take reasonable steps to address the the treatment that's necessary. If it's simply not available, there's nothing that you can do about it. But if there are other options available and you haven't even at least tried, then they have an argument. So don't give that to don't give them that argument. Yeah. Um, Another issue that we see frequently is the issue of whether or not there is objective medical evidence to support a claim. And this is obviously not something you're going to be able to get for a mental health claim. And so they're often treated differently. There isn't an x-ray that you can put in front of an insurance company that shows in black and white that you have this or you don't have this. And that's why it's really important to make sure that you are doing everything you can, everything that's reasonable, to address your mental health issues and to get treatment. You want to make sure that you are raising it with your family physician, that you are asking your family physician about what other options are available for therapy, for medication. So that is there. That is evidence. It may not be in and of itself objective because it's going to be based on your self-reports, but at the very least, it shows that you are taking all of the steps necessary. And the more that is referenced within your medical file, the more difficult it is for your insurer to say that there is inadequate medical evidence to support your claim. So I would very strongly recommend that if you are in that situation, don't throw your hands up in the air and say it's too difficult. There's no there's no mental health care available. There are things that you can do, particularly to help your position in the disability claims process and then down the road if your insurer were to deny your claim to help you bring a lawsuit against your insurance company to put you in a better position down the road so there are a lot there are a lot of things that you can do if you're in this situation and you're having difficulty whether you're at the application phase 
whether you're on claim and you're getting a lot of pushback from your insurer, or particularly if you've been denied or your benefits have been cut off, we are certainly available for a free consultation. We're happy to talk about the issues that you're facing and make sure that you're going to be covered as best you can and put yourself in the best position to continue receiving benefits and to recover benefits down the road if you have to bring a loss. You can and should reach out to James and his team because this stuff can be so confusing. one 821 5900 is how you do that. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. And the first one for the show today is going to go to uh, Ian. says, guys, I've... Uh I've been on LTD for over 24 months. My doctor and the insurance company's doctor both say I'm not able to work, but my insurance company is hiring another company to further investigate if I am disabled. My psychiatrist told me this company is really bothering him. Why are they still looking for more information when their own psychiatrist states I'm disabled? Any ideas on what's going on? Are they trying to cut me off? If they do, will they just stop my payments? My doctor's feeling very harassed. I bet. What do you think, James? Well, I think there's a lot going on here. Um, I think this is a this is an extreme example of what can happen in the disability claims process. Insurance companies are in the business to make money. They make money by cutting off claims earlier, by by denying claims out of the gate if they can. And so they will look for ways to do that, even if it's not necessarily the case that they ought to. Here we have an insurance company that is presumably spending money. So Ian writes that his insurance company is hiring another company to investigate if he's disabled, and that's after a psychiatrist hired by the insurance company has already told them that he's disabled. The insurance company is spending money on this claim, and when they spend that kind of money on a claim, it suggests to me it's because they believe they're going to be able to get evidence that is going to support a denial. They think they're going to be able to. So I would need to see what their psychiatrist said first. If their psychiatrist said very clearly that Ian is disabled and is never going to return to work, then I don't know what they're doing. But more than likely, the psychiatrist said either he can't return to his job uh, that he has or perhaps that he can't return at the moment, but perhaps down the road. And so it's possible they're hiring another company to do rehabilitation and to try and see whether or not they can get Ian in a position where they could justify cutting off benefits because they can say that he's ready to return to work. It's difficult without having the actual source information to be able to say exactly what's happening. Uh, In terms of Ian's doctor, that's unfortunate that they are doing something that is making its doctor feel harassed. They shouldn't, no. be, they shouldn't be doing anything more than asking for updates in the clinical records and perhaps asking his doctor periodically, maybe twice a year, to fill out an update on his condition. If they're doing more than that and it's interfering with uh, Ian's relationship, then it's something that should be put in writing, brought to their attention, and asking that they stop doing anything beyond what's absolutely necessary. Thank you, Ian. Appreciate that note. We'll take a short break. You can always reach out to James now that we uh, got through your email, one 821 5900 More emails and questions coming up. Lillian, you are next. Thank you for your contribution ahead of time, and we'll do that on the other side of the break right here on the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program.
Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You bet. We're back. Disability Law Show. Good having you along with us. You can always contribute to the show and uh, ask your questions. It might make it on air as well. A couple different ways to do that. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. There's also mydisabilityquestions.com. That website was put together for you to contribute to the show as well as get some answers from James and his team freely and anonymously, mydisabilityquestions.com. And you can always you know pick up a phone and talk to James when we're not doing the show here, 1-855-821-5900. As promised, Lillian is next. James, here we go. Says, guys, I am currently on LTD for anxiety and depression. I've decided not to go back to my old job because the environment exacerbated my anxiety and depression, and the doctor agrees with me. I would like to start applying to jobs that are less stressful. Uh, Am I allowed to apply to jobs while I'm on LTD, or do I need to quit my job first? With the insurance company, will the insurance company cut off my LTD once I quit? Is it possible to get a consultation uh, on my situation to see what is the best course of action? What do you think, pal? Well, I'm going to start with the last question first. So certainly it is possible to get a consultation, and I would absolutely recommend it. Uh, We offer both disability and employment law advice, and we have uh, many lawyers that are very capable in one, the other, and in both. And so it's something that we're certainly well-situated to provide Lillian with the advice to make sure that she's in the best position possible. In terms of what I would suggest typically in this situation, so first and foremost, do you need to quit your job before applying for other jobs? No, you don't need to quit your job, but if you were to be employed by uh, some other employer, then yeah, you would eventually need to do that. You would need to do that before you start with your new employer. If you were to quit, would your insurance company cut off your LTD? Typically, no. So let's look at this as a separate issue, not about starting a new job, but about quitting the job that you had. Quitting the job that you have should not trigger any change in your LTD status in and of itself. You have to be employed and working at the time you go on leave in order to apply and be approved for disability benefits. But once you are actually on disability, there's no change to your status if you quit or if you were terminated uh, from your position or let's say your employer goes out of business, that doesn't actually have an impact on your entitlement to receive disability benefits as long as you continue to be disabled under the policy. The issue though is when your employment ends even sometimes if it's by quitting, although typically if you're terminated, you may be in a position to get termination or severance pay. And in many policies, in fact, in most policies, if you get any severance from your old job, that will act as an offset against what your employer or what your insurer is required to pay. And typically it's not going to work on the total amount of severance. It's going to work on the time period. So let's say you're entitled to four months of severance for, uh, let's say you're making $7,000 a month, so it's $28,000. It isn't $28,000 that's deducted from your disability payments. It's the four months where you're getting that income that your disability benefits would be offset for. So that's typically going to be a lot less than the $28,000. So that's just a good distinction to understand there. 
And so that's really what I think you need to understand generally about this situation in terms of looking at a new occupation. I wouldn't uh, necessarily raise it with your insurance company out of the gate that you're looking at other potential occupations, especially if you're doing it in the context of something that is fitting a very narrow window of opportunity. So in other words, let's say your disability is preventing you from returning to the job that you've had and most pretend potential occupations are still going to be impossible for you but perhaps there is one particular opportunity that you might be able to do for whatever reason i don't know that it is worthwhile raising that with your employer that you're looking to that particular opportunity especially if you don't know you're going to get it because if you don't get it, then what's the difference? I mean, if your employer asks you if you've applied for something, you have to be honest with them. Right. But if it's a very specific opportunity that you may or may not be able to perform if you were hired, to me, that is too theoretical to require you to have to raise that with your insurance company. Certainly, if you got the job, you have to let them know. You can't hide that from them. If you find new employment, you have to tell them. Yeah. Uh, but if it is a particular opportunity and you don't know whether you'd be able to do it and you certainly don't know whether you're going to be hired. I wouldn't raise it with them in advance. I don't think it's necessary to do that because the result is going to be, if you tell them that you're looking for work, the result is going to be, they're going to find a way to cut you off. That is what is going to happen. So if it's for something that is far from a certainty, if you're doing it because you think this opportunity might be okay, but you're not sure, I would hold on to that until you find out what happens with your application. On the other hand, if you're at a point where Financially, you can't afford to continue to be off work, even with the disability benefits you're receiving. And you feel like there is a particular occupation that you can return to and you're going to apply for every opening possible. That's a different scenario. In that scenario, I think if you're applying widespread, I think you have to raise it with your insurer. I think it would be disingenuous to hide that from them. And in fact, if it is your... Uh, if it is your decision that you're going to return to work, hopefully that's with the support of your medical team, mm -hmm. even if it's for a different occupation. Yeah. Raising it with your insurer might even be helpful. Uh, they obviously have in, an interest in seeing you returning to work because that will allow them to stop paying your benefits. And many insurers will offer support in helping you find a way to either get uh, a job opening that you may not have been aware of or to provide you with retraining or even rehabilitation they'll put you in a better position to be able to do some other job so if that is your situation if you are determined to return to work come hell or high water and you're looking for any opportunity that's going to be available to you that will pay you over and above what you're getting from your disability insurer in that situation i would call you raise so, so, so basically, they're willing to uh, spend a buck to make ten if they can get you off claim and get you back to work, like you said, with the retraining and stuff. I, I never knew that. I didn't realize that. It's not across the board, and right. even you know, th there are so, there are some policies that will have that written into them, a rehabilitation obligation on the insurance company. So, certainly, take a look at your policy and see if there is something there, because if you're interested in returning to work and you need some retraining or rehabilitation and it's offered under the policy, by all means, take advantage of that if you're in the situation where you're determined to return to work. Right. But even in policies where the insurer isn't absolutely required to provide you retraining or rehabilitation, and often it is not a requirement. 
I have seen many situations where insurers will voluntarily will voluntarily pay for that type of mm. program if, if, from their perspective, it's going to be beneficial. They want to pay out as little money as possible, and if they can send you to a rehabilitation program or retrain you and then justify cutting you off, then to them, it's a win if they otherwise were going to have to pay you benefits for another three, four, five years. They won't always say yes if they're not required to, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily expect that they will, but it can be worthwhile raising it with them from that perspective. And in any case, you don't want a situation where you're applying for jobs uh, every which way and your insurer gets wind of it and says, well, you never told us that you're doing this. We take the position that you're ready to work right now and you're capable of working and we're cutting you off. If you bring them in on the process, assuming again that you are determined to return to work, then they're going to be much more willing to work with you and give you a better timeline to make sure that you land on your feet. They don't want to be accused of undermining your, your return to all right, good stuff. That's a good answer for a lengthy email for sure, as is Kendall's. Let's get to Kendall's email next. Uh, James says, guys, my wife listens to your show and said I should ask for some advice. We like your wife already. She's very smart. Um, I'm 59 and worked in finance for one of the school boards for many years. I was involved in a bad motorcycling accident some years ago and still have chronic pain in my neck and back. I managed to keep working but had to stop last year when I started getting chronic sinus infections. My nose runs all the time and I'm congested. Sometimes I have coughing fits that prevent me from talking. My doctors and the specialists still don't know what's wrong but think it may be migraines from the spinal injuries. I've been trying to get long-term disability insurance for a year now and keep getting declined. They say that the chronic sinus infections and chronic back pain is not severe enough to prevent me from working at my sedentary job. Not sure what all that means, but I'm wondering if you think this is worth pursuing. It sounds like it probably is worth pursuing. Really, it just depends on the extent to which you can show that your functional ability is preventing you from being able to do your job effectively. So it's not just simply a case of, okay, Kendall can show up to work and produce something and therefore he's not disabled from being able to work. That's not necessarily the case at all. It may well just be an issue that even though you're going to work, you're producing at a much lower level than you had before, or you require significant amount of sick leave in order to just get through the week, or your duties and responsibilities have been reduced as a result, what you need to really be able to show is that your medical condition is preventing you from being able to do the job as you had before. There's also, by the way, another possibility here. There are certainly situations where people have been able to do the job maybe not quite as well as they had before but they are able to show up more or less every day and produce at more or less the level that's required of them perhaps not at the level they were before but at a level that justifies their continued employment but in order to do that it requires essentially all of their energy all of their cognition to be able to just show up and do it. And they do it because financially they have no choice, but it means they come home from work and they have nothing left to give their family, nothing for the wife, nothing for the kids. They can't do any housework. They don't see any friends, whatever the case is. If that's the situation, then the court will say that you're disabled from work. 
even though you are actually going to work in doing the job at what is otherwise an acceptable level, you're not required to do that at the expense of everything else in your life. The insurance company will disagree with that, but that doesn't matter because at the end of the day, if this winds up in front of a judge, the judge will say that you are disabled from work if that's a situation that has put you into. So again, if you know, in Kendall's situation, I can't say for sure based on this email whether or not Kendall is actually disabled or not. It's going to depend on a much better description from him in terms of the issues he faces on a day-to-day -day basis both at work and outside of work. If it is preventing Kendall from being able to interact with his family and being able to enjoy life, then it probably is a valid claim and it's probably worth pursuing. So that's where I would fall on that. It's you know always going to be specific to each individual case. So you're gonna to have to look at the facts for each one in order to determine whether it's worthwhile, but it certainly sounds like there could be something there. It would be the, um, as we get to break, it would be, uh, I guess it wouldn't be a lengthy claim, though, considering Kendall's 59. Most policies go to 65, yeah? Yeah, but even so, we're still yeah. talking about, you know, another six years or so. And, you know, the reality is that if Kendall has lost any money up until this point of time because of having to go on previous leaves, it's theoretically possible that the claim might even be backdated. Now, any income that's been earned in the interim would be offset, but at the very least, you're still talking about five to six years of benefits, mm -hmm. and that's not nothing. And yeah. typically speaking, as you uh, are in the workforce for a longer period of time, especially if you're, as Kendall is working in finance, more than likely, Kendall's making decent money, and the value of that claim, even if it's limited to five or six years, is probably going to be fairly significant. And in any case, Whatever it is, it's probably going to be worthwhile making sure that uh, Kendall gets everything that he's entitled to under the policy. Let's take a short break. More questions and emails on the way. James, thank you so much ahead of time. If you're listening to the show today for uh, sending those along, you can keep doing that. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Mydisabilityquestions.com also works. And if you want a phone call out to the show to discuss your matter with James and his team, you can always do that on your own time. Consultation or at least a chat is no problem. one 855 5900 This is the Disability Law Show. Lots more coming up. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Disability Law Show, indeed. Love doing this every week. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you've contributed to the show today or uh, in the past, we thank you. And in advance, if you're planning to send an email in the next couple of weeks to the show, now that you've uh, heard how it works, it's simple to do so. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And call James Fireman and his team. He's uh, he's ready for you. one 821 5,900. Common question we get all the time via, via email or phone call, uh, James, is, you know, when you're pursuing those disability benefits, let's flip it over to the government side. What kind of assistance should you be pursuing or can you and will you have to, uh, if at all, as far as government assistance is concerned? Yeah, it's a really good question. So if you have been denied your benefits or if your benefits have been cut off and you have to bring a lawsuit against your insurance company to recover the disability benefits, even though we work very quickly, it is still going to take some time in order to get to resolution. Typically, the legal process is going to take 10 to 12 months to play out. That's the 
typical time frame that most of our clients are engaged in the process for once they've been denied or cut off and decide to hire us. And so that raises the issue of what are they going to do for income in the meantime, if they're being cut off or denied their disability benefits and they're not working. So there are a few ways to address this. If you had not prior to applying for your disability benefits, applied for EI sickness benefits, then you should do that. EI sickness benefits is uh, a federal government program. And it does not, like normally EI, normally EI is gonna require that you say that you're able to return to work. And so that's not something that's going to be available to someone who's pursuing disability benefits because that would require you to say that you can't work. Right. So you wouldn't be able to apply for normal EI, but there is an EI sickness benefit. And if you're paying into EI as everybody is, you're gonna be entitled to that sickness benefit in virtually every case. So that's something I would absolutely apply for. I believe it would entitle you to something like 16 to 17 weeks up to a maximum of, uh, this is off the top of my head, so I could be wrong on this, but I think it's about $650 a week at a maximum. That's not necessarily going to be enough to uh, replace what you're losing uh, or may not even be enough to keep you afloat, but it is better than nothing and is relatively easy to access. So that's step number one. Uh, number two is CPP disability. Yes. So again, if you're, play, if you're paying into CPP, Canada Pension Plan, then you also should have access to CPP disability if you become injured and it prevents you from being able to work. Now, the test for CPP disability, and again, this is a federal government program, the test for CPP disability is more difficult than the test for long-term disability. CPP disability requires a severe and prolonged disability. That is more difficult to show than the LTD test, which is a disability that's preventing you from doing the regular tasks of your own occupation. So if you are able to uh, get approved for CPP disability, which again, isn't a certainty, even if you are in fact entitled to LTD benefits, if you are approved for CPP disability, it will pay you up to a maximum of about $1,500 a month. The amount goes up each year. So uh, for 24, that will probably be something closer to 1600, but I don't know yet. But in any case, that is typically the maximum. They calculate it based on what your contributions have been, and you'll have an entitlement as long as you've worked and contributed to CPP, and I think it's four of the last six years. So that is an option that's available for, for some people anyway. Unfortunately, it isn't something that's going to provide you with immediate relief, because if you're approved or if you apply for CPP disability, it's usually something like four, five, six months before they actually process the application. Sometimes it's quicker, but not usually. So there can be a little bit of waiting involved. Uh, for other people, particularly if uh, you're not a homeowner or if you're not, uh, if you don't have another income in the family, you might have access to ODSP, the Ontario Disability Support Program. Okay. That one is dependent not just on being able to show a disability that, that's preventing you from being able to work, but also showing that your financial means are such that you require that assistance. Uh, the downside to that one is if you are approved for that and you eventually do get your disability benefits down the road, then you're going to be required to pay that back. So it's yeah, you know, still better than nothing. It's providing you 
with some money in advance to keep you afloat, but it's not going to get you any further ahead at the end of the day. Those are the typical government programs. There is also uh, the disability tax credit. Uh, that's not going to provide you with immediate money, but it is going to provide you with some tax relief if you are receiving any benefits or government assistance that is otherwise taxable. So some disability policies are taxable, some of them are not. The distinction is typically if you are paying for the premiums on your own, then the benefit you receive if you become disabled isn't taxable. But you can find out pretty quickly whether your benefits are taxable or not. If they are taxable, then you can apply to the federal government for the disability tax credit, and that will provide you with a discount on your taxes, so to speak. I think it will save you up to something in the range of $8,000 in taxes to the extent that you would have to pay those for receiving the long-term disability benefits or CPP disability. CPP disability is also a taxable uh, government assistance benefit. So that is worthwhile applying to as well. Beyond that, I'm not aware of any government programs that would provide assistance. Um, certainly uh, when people start this process and they have concerns about what they're going to do for money, we'll talk about the government assistance available that I've just raised uh, in this segment. And then you have to look at other sources of income whether it is asking family members for help and support while you're in the process, or look if you own your house or if you have significant equity in your house, yeah. possibly looking at uh, getting a line of credit um, against your house or uh, finding some other source of money where, that you could borrow. It's worthwhile looking at those. The reality is uh, for people who are engaged in this process, if they're denied or cut off and they contact my firm, and we agree to go ahead with the process, we only do that if we're very confident that you're gonna be successful. You know, we don't make any guarantees, of course, but we work on a contingency. And that means that if we are hired to take on your case, it's only because we strongly believe you're going to be successful. And if that's the case, then you're probably in a better position to ask for rely on loans, whether it's from a bank or whether it's from family and friends to help keep you afloat during the process. But that's obviously something that is the last option for you. Yeah. It's the worst case scenario. Ideally, you would wanna either keep yourself afloat by relying on any savings that you have or from government assistance that's available. Let's take a short break, James. Good answer. Lots more to go here. We'll get to Marianne at least after the after the break. Send along your emails as well. If we don't get to it with the remainder of this show, maybe an upcoming show, we will help at disabilityrights.ca and call the phone number anytime when the show is not on to get some answers on a, of a private nature. Have your own conversation with James or a member of his team, one 821 5900 Disability Law Show continues. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we're back. Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go. James Fireman, always reachable when the show is done and going forward at one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca. 
All right, James, up next we got uh, we got Marianne. Says, guys, my husband has struggled with mental health issues for years. He hasn't been the same since he was in a bad car accident five years ago, broke his back. He used to work as an account executive at a large communications company. He hasn't worked in a while and got disability benefits. He was cut off, though, back in late 2021, and we never got a letter from the insurance company telling us why. He's still struggling, and his doctors support that he cannot work. Is it too late to start a legal claim for benefits, James. Well, it depends on how late in 2021, in 2021 he was cut off. There is a two-year limitation period, and unfortunately, that two-year limitation period is fairly strict. And so, if you are denied or cut off benefits, and you wait longer than two years, in virtually all cases. A court would say if you try to start a lawsuit after those two years had elapsed, that you're not entitled to bring the claim, that you are barred by the Limitations Act in Ontario from bringing that claim. And if you're listening in any other jurisdiction, as far as I'm aware, every jurisdiction in Canada, every province in Canada has similar legislation. And so this two-year limitation period is something that you're going to have to be very aware of. If you receive a letter from your insurance company, then it's a problem. Now, in Mary Ann's case, she's saying that he never got a letter from the insurance company telling him why. So it may be that even if this is beyond the two-year date when his benefits were cut off, there may be a basis to bring a lawsuit even if it's beyond the two-year mark. You don't want to test that out, though. And so you want to bring the claim as quickly as possible to make sure that if you can avoid the insurer even raising that as an issue, you do so. You don't want to have to argue about whether or not you're within or outside the two-year limitation period. But in this particular case, it may well be possible. It may be possible if the letter was never sent. Now, undoubtedly, I'm sure that if we were to bring a claim, the insurance company would say, oh, no, we sent the the letter on such and such a date and here's our evidence showing that it was sent that doesn't necessarily mean it was received depends how it was sent and where it was sent to so sometimes we see that these uh denial letters or termination of benefits letters are sent by email in which case we would simply want to take a look at the email address that was used and make sure that it was the correct email address and at least in that situation, you're usually able to check with the server, the email server from uh, the from the provider to see whether or not it was sent. Whether you can go back two years or not might be difficult, but there is at least a possibility to show one way or the other whether or not it was sent and whether it was actually received by Marianne's husband. If it was sent by letter, that can be a little trickier. Obviously, first you're going to look at the address that they used. I've seen situations where insurers have sent it to an address that the that the person was no longer living at and the insurer had already been advised that they weren't living there anymore. If that were the case, then there wouldn't be any issue bringing the claim. As long as you did it, as soon as you realize that you had the ability to bring the claim, you should be totally fine, even if it's slightly beyond the two-year mark. Uh, if the insurer had sent it to the right place, then it's an argument about whether or not it was actually received. It's certainly not unheard of that a letter could get lost in the mail that does happen it doesn't necessarily mean because they sent it to the right address 
that it ever got there. But of course, if the insurer can show that they sent it, that's going to create at least the possibility that a court will accept that. And so it becomes a more difficult situation to deal with because you're not only dealing with an argument on whether or not Marianne's husband is actually still disabled under the policy. You're also dealing with whether or not you're even entitled to bring a lawsuit if they have sent it to the right address. Right. And so then you're going to have to rely on evidence that you never got it. Marianne would probably, if this ever went to court, would have to uh, be a witness saying, you know, she never remembers having seen it. And it would be up to a judge to decide one way or another. And as a lawyer, I wouldn't be able to tell my client with any certainty what a court would do with that, whether the judge would accept the uh, Marianne's husband's evidence that he never got that letter or not. And so that creates risk. And when it creates risk, it means that you have to account for that risk when you're assessing the value of the file. All of that means that even if he actually never got the letter, if the insurance company can say that they sent it to the right address, I'm going to have to value the file as being less worthwhile than it otherwise would be because of that risk. So all of which is to say there is the potential there to bring a claim, Marianne, for your husband's disability, but we want to do it as quickly as possible so that we can, in all possibility, avoid the insurance company being able to rely on this limitations defense and say that your husband is out of time. We really hope that uh, that answered help, uh, Marianne, quite uh, quite in depth for sure. You can always reach out anyway. Again, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Want to squeeze this in our last uh, bit of the show here, James? When clients first meet with you or talk to you, what questions should they be asking you, or at least top three anyway? What do they uh, What do they need to know? Well, most clients are going to want to understand how the process works. So, first and foremost, they want to understand how payment works, how they have to pay to hire a lawyer. And the quick answer to that is any lawyer that practices in disability, and that certainly is true for every lawyer at Sevier to Markin, is going to work on what we call a contingency fee basis, which means that we are paid only as a percentage of what's recovered, which means that there is no fee required if we are not successful. So we take on cases that we're confident are going to succeed because of exactly that reason. We wanna make sure we're getting paid for our work. So that's the first thing that people wanna understand. They wanna make sure that they are not going to have to pay money out of their own pocket while they're not working and while they're not getting disability benefits. And one thing I can tell you across the board is if we're retained, uh, to represent you in a claim against your insurance company, you will never have to pay anything out of pocket. It is not something you're going to have to do at any point, whether it's for our fees or whether it's for any expenses that come up. That doesn't come out of pocket. That only gets taken out of the proceeds of settlement if we're successful. The other thing people typically want to understand is how long it's going to take and what's involved. The short answer is typically the process from start to finish, from the day the retainer is signed until the end, is going to be about 10 to 12 months. It can be shorter than that. And in rare occasions, it can be a little bit longer, but that should be the expectation, about 10 to 12 months. And for most people, 
the requirement is uh, in terms of their involvement is going to be relatively low, much lower than you might expect for any other kind of litigation. For most of my clients, when they sign the retainer, the next thing they do is they show up to the mediation 10 to 12 months later and we get it resolved. There can be other steps involved. There can be examinations for discovery or independent medical evaluations, but those are typically done over a couple of hours and they don't make the process take longer and they're more the exception than the rule. So that's usually the the information most people are interested in getting when they talk. And with that, we're just about out of time, guys. Appreciate you uh, contributing to the show, your emails and questions. We'll leave it at that for now and give you the time to uh, jot this number down if you want to reach out to James and his team and have a conversation of your own for yourself. Maybe a colleague, family member is a little bashful to uh, write into the show. You can always have a conversation now on the phone. That number, one 855 The email, just in case, is help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, you can go to mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.